You're listening to episode five of the second season of The Nature of Nurture, a podcast for your mental health. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Carr, and today's conversation is a super fun one. It's with my friend Fatimata Sanogo. Fatimata is a PhD student in epidemiology at the University of Southern California, the founder and CEO of a nonprofit organization called Sahel Sage that you'll learn more about in a bit, and she's also an excellent yoga teacher. That's how I know her. One of the things that happened between season one and season two of the podcast is that I moved to Los Angeles. Surprise! And Fatimata is one of my yoga teachers here in LA. So why did I want to interview her, you may be wondering. Well, if you listened to the episode right before this, and if you didn't, that's okay. You might be interested in checking it out after you're done with this one. You heard me and my teacher, Michelle Masters, talk about the power of beliefs, how they're formed, how they shape our experience of reality, and how changing them can change our lives in surprising ways. Well, I wanted to explore that theme a little further, and Fatimata has some very interesting thoughts and opinions to share on the subject. In addition to everything I listed above, Fatimata is also the author of a book called 31 Universal Spiritual Principles, a daily guide and tool for spiritual growth, joy, and empowerment from the teachings of Michael Bernard Beckwith. Some of you may be familiar with the name Michael Beckwith because of his affiliation with what we call The Secret. (laughs) I know The Secret is tremendously polarizing and I have some issues with it myself, but to be candid... The issues I have are not because I think the principles of the secret are entirely false or untrue. In a nutshell for the uninitiated, the secret is basically about the idea that our thoughts create our reality. That gratitude for what we have tends to beget more things to be grateful for. And in and of itself, I would argue that that's true, even if it's merely about adopting a positive mindset. No, I think if I have any problem with the secret, it's that it's, first of all, misunderstood by people who are not inclined to agree with it. It also promotes an idea that teeters on unhealthy, which is encouraging people in some instances to deny reality in the name of thinking positively. This was something that I addressed with Michelle in the last episode, and I will also let you know right now that Fatimata and I talk about that too, because she is not here to argue that people should deny unpleasant thoughts or feelings or merely think positively. What we're here to discuss is merely spiritual principles for creating more joy in your life. And Fatimata's story is super interesting because whereas Michelle and I talked about the nature of the unconscious and why creating the reality we want can be hard, Fatimata is here as this incredible example of what happens when it comes easily. Fatimata was born and raised in the West African country of Burkina Faso in, as she once put it to me offline, quote unquote, the middle of nowhere. And she emigrated to the United States at 19, not yet able to speak English. She's since gone on to graduate from college here and become a PhD student. And she also appears to be living, by all accounts, a pretty magical and wonderful life. So we talk about some pretty fantastic things. And I think we talk about them from a pretty grounded place. For example, one of the things we talk about is the placebo effect. The placebo effect is fascinating because it's this incredible example of how on some level, our thoughts create our reality. And from a mainstream psychological perspective, we just kind of accept it as a given without saying, but wait, how does our mind impact our reality in this way? If our thoughts don't have an impact on reality as we know it, how could the placebo effect possibly work? So I'll encourage you to think for yourself and come to your own conclusions. But I, for one, think this conversation is pretty fascinating. 
Will you tell our listeners a little bit about where you're from and how you grew up, where you grew up? Yeah, absolutely. So I was born and raised in Burkina Faso. And Burkina Faso is the country that is located in West Africa. And the town where I was born actually is called Dori, D-O-R-I, and it's in the northern part. Although Burkina is what we would call somewhat of a tropical country, the northern parts where Dori is and where I grew up is actually just the Sahel. You know, to give you an idea, Sahel is sort of like the transition, you know, between tropical and the Sahara Desert. Wow. So as you're just right at the edge of the Sahara Desert. So I grew up, you know, like with sand dunes, you know, five, you know, miles from my house. And mm-hmm. <laughs> and then also, you know, right next to the town, there is like rivers that would, you know, just fill with water during, you know, the rainy season, but all dry up when it's dry. So it's, it was very interesting, like just this constant change. We can go from like beautiful sand dunes from like, the one day to the next day, it's just like it rains. And then, you know, when it rains two days later, all the same dunes will turn into this like green hills. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that sounds breathtaking. Like yeah. Of the changes of the sort of the Sahel, if you want, or somewhat also. And so I liked all of that. You know, it gets super hot, which, you know, I'm not like now when I go back, since I've been living in the US, I'm not too much of a, you know, I'm not too much of a fan of, you know, being too hot, like 120 mm-hmm, degrees. Yeah. But back then it was just, no, it gets too hot. And then, you know, it gets too cold at night. And then, you know, you have a dry landscape and then it gets green, but then you enjoy it for a couple months and it's gone. So it's our version of the seasons, I guess. (laughs) Sounds like incredible sort of duality to experience, to be at the edge of a desert like that with rivers around you. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, some of the, you know, just also there's the whole like bird migration pattern, right? So for, you know, uh, some of those rivers are also key rivers for like, you know, stop point for like birds that would migrate, you know, seasonally. So every now and then you get like this influx of, you know, like all kind of birds, you know, that are like just passing through. And then the next moment they're gone. <laughs> so, so cool. It sounds like it's like the great migration of birds. Yeah. It's really, <laughs> it's really cool growing up. And, you know, when night falls, where I grew up is, I remember, lastly, I grew up with my grandparents also in town. So I had, of course, my parents and we had our house, but in like, you know, less than a mile away lived my grandparents, my grandma and my grandpa. And, you know, on the other side of town was my great grandmother and I have all these like cousins and uncles, you know, and aunts in town. And typically, especially with grandparents, when we were kids, you know, when you're hanging out with them, sunset, it's just, well, let's come and hang out in the courtyard, right? And then there's just all kinds of stories that are being told. You know, and you're just there with your cousins and, you know, all that. And it was also really fun just like growing and learning from grandparent and, you know, learning from storytelling and like open air. And when you look up, and I really do miss that. And sometimes I forget how filled of stars, like the sky. You know, when you look up, it's either a full moon and the moon is so bright. You think it's a second sun. Literally, you don't even need light. Yeah. It's just pitch dark, but then you look up and the sky is literally just full of stars. Yeah, that's so incredible. Um, yeah, so yeah, that was great. That was that was my childhood. And just to share a little bit. So my, actually, I grew up in the family of also multi-generational spiritual teachers. And, yeah, I was about to ask about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, this is actually a really fun fact that I actually really learned 
only learn more of this, you know, maybe past four or five years when I went home and I was asking, you know, especially when I really got more into a focus in like my own like spiritual path, I guess. I wanted to do more about mm-hmm. our family. And my great grandfather was actually the, the the person who built the first mosque in my hometown, mm. Dory. So they originally, you know, came from Mali and, you know, you know, made it to Burkina in the northern part. And then, you know, the what they call, till today it's called the big mosque. I knew of the big mosque, but it just never, I never connected the dots until I was an adult. That, oh, this is why we hang out there. Or this is why we do <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's <laughs> Because yeah. grandpa was the, really the leader, the one who like just brought about, you know, spiritual teachings from, of course, like Islamic uh, traditions and whatnot. And right. so the first mosque. And then there's another second mosque. The second mosque was also built by my great grandfather, which still is in my grandfather's courtyard. And this is sort of like the place where I, you know, mostly hang out with my, my grandparents. But yeah, my family is definitely a multi-generational family of spiritual teachers and healers and sheikhs. We call them sheikh in, in Muslim tradition. And, and it was so much fun to have that, like spiritual healers. And then have like my great grandmother that was sort of just that. My memories of my great grandma were people just coming over to greet her and say hi, but stop by and say, hey, I've got this migraine and I just need, you know, a prayer. And then she'll just touch them with her hand and pray and this is it. And they're happy and it's gone. Or, you know, they have a chronic condition and they just like to come every so often. And she'd never done anything weird. It was either just like praying over words for someone or she would use, I remember that, like a calabash of water. And then she'll just like both pray words, you know, on the flash wow. of water and then hand it over to the person and they drink and they heal. And that I have witnessed like multiple times. And it was really cool to have that along with, you know, sometimes they would just say, oh, yeah, just grab that neem, you know, the neem leaves and mix it with eucalyptus, you know, because, you know, we have all these like trees all around and just boil that and then just absorb the steam, you know, and that will make you feel better depending on what you have, or just drink a little bit of this and you will be fine. So plants, right? So there was healing through word or spirituality, or they were like healing through like plants, like just, you know, something around your nature. And there was also healing through Western medicine because Mm -hmm. my father actually is a trained medical doctor. And and because I grew up in the small town, for the longest time he was the doctor. Yeah. <laughs> in town, right? Oh, here's the doctor uh, <laughs> in town. Now it's you know it's bigger town, and of course they have like more than one hospital. They have several. They even have like clinics, private clinics or whatnot. But so I grew up with that too. Something like oh yeah, this person's got like this headache, and it's oh yeah, they need this drug and, you know, like just two pills a day, you know, or, oh, this person just got malaria. Oh, they need chloroquine and they will have a week-long treatment. Oh, wow, this person is anemic. Oh, they really need a blood transfusion. So there was nothing odd about it, but they were just like all these different ways of healing that were just in total harmony with like one another that I, I just grew up with, which also I appreciate a lot more now. Mm-hmm. 
in like the U.S. because I have taken it for granted. I just always, I thought that was just the thing everywhere. <laughs> yeah, that is so amazing. I really appreciate what you're saying about sort of the integration of those two things or just the respect that existed for both traditions. And it's interesting to think that what you're talking about with your grandmother, there's one other piece that I can't help but want to point out. Yeah. Is the healing that occurs sort of through the human interaction? Yeah. Which is to say that, you know, I mean, here you and I are here to talk about many magical things. So it's not to dismiss some of the, you know, the quantum magic that may have occurred in those interactions. But I think that there's also something that transpires when one person feels cared for by another person. Absolutely. That creates its own alchemy, too. It's really interesting. If you don't mind me kind of sharing a quick anecdote that yes, might sound yes. slightly off topic, but I think it's really interesting. Yeah. So there are all of these cultural components to mental illness where we don't see the same things all around the world. But if you look at something like schizophrenia, schizophrenia is something that we do see the world over. But what's really interesting is to see the differences in outcomes depending on where people are. So we really struggle in the United States to treat schizophrenia effectively. And there's all this beautiful research. I'll try to find a link to put this in the show notes, but that shows that the outcomes when people have schizophrenia in Africa they tend to fare better. And a lot of it is because of the community support. There's just much more of a, you know, in the United States, we're so extremely individualized. And it's just interesting to think that with the type of community that you're talking about and the type of care you're describing, there's also the human component of, hey, I need this thing. I'm going to go to this person. She's going to treat me with care. You know, she's going to bless me, put her hands on me. That's an amazing piece of this too, I think. Absolutely, Leslie. And, you know, because at the end of the day, as a, you know, and now also like a trained scientist, you know, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, like on my way to getting my PhD in epidemiology, right? If, if, if I look back in retrospect, we may ask the question, well, what was the source of healing, you know, like about, you know, just stopping by and here she is, you know, my great grandma, we call Inna you know, in that evoking like words, and then she's healed. They're like praying or like just literally just plain water, you know, and you drink like maybe there's something to it. I don't know is, you know, like probably a safer answer, but you couldn't, it was so palpable, you know, that that connection, human interaction that you were, uh, you were pointing to that for sure was so palpable in her courtyard, like mm -hmm. at her house. Mm -hmm. And it was like a glue. People really came for that kind of care and love. And yeah, and it was just like an all day phenomenon. And I really enjoyed it because it was at my great grandmother that I get to meet like some second cousins and third cousins because she was such a also a connection, right? You know, like in terms of just like family, like people that I wouldn't otherwise meet, meet that I'm like relative of, but they would come to her. But then the people in the community, right? The friends and the neighbors, but there was definitely a space of love mm -hmm. that being cared for. And I really believed that human interaction and, you know, and mutual care can be extremely beneficial for health. Yeah. I'm, I'm also thinking about the placebo effect, which is interesting yeah. to me because I think some <laughs> <that> people, <laughs> yeah. And it's amazing. It's an amazing thing to think about, right? Like the power of belief, you know, that I think one of the things that's so amazing about the placebo effect is that for some reason, some people have a tendency to dismiss it. Like it's always quote unquote, just the placebo effect. And I always want to be like, just the placebo effect. I mean, far from it. The idea that our 
you know, in so many ways, this is what we're here to talk about today. But the idea that our thoughts and beliefs can not only impact our reality, but impact, you know, like our health, like the foundation of our health or how we feel, you know, day to day in an ongoing fashion. Totally. If someone blesses you and tells you that you're healed (laughs) and you believe it in so many ways, that's all, that's all it takes. Yeah. And that's really what it takes. And when you expect it, there's a shift. There is a shift that occurs that brings about that kind of, it's like you prep your mind for that new condition. You know, there's a more availability and receptivity and willingness of the mind, you know, literally, you know, to to shift from whatever physical or like health condition that you have to like actually the belief that you said that, oh, you can actually have the, the other state, which is a state of like just healing and what that will feel like. There's a conviction, there's an expectation that is not stained by like any doubt, in that space. And I really think that's sort of what really brings about the magic or the alchemy of just the placebo. So incredible. I'm really with you. Yeah. There's an anecdote that's coming to mind that I think you'll appreciate. I don't know if you've ever heard about this specific study, but something that I learned about when I was in school, kind of about the placebo effect is they did a a controlled experiment where they took a group of people that all needed knee surgery, a specific kind of knee surgery. You know, I don't know exactly what it was, but they split them into two groups. Yeah. They gave Very half. Uh, yeah. Do you do you know this? Yeah, yeah. I love that. It's yeah. for everyone else. Yeah, yeah. They, they gave here to get half to. the people actual knee surgery, and for the other half of the people, they went through all of the steps as if they were going to do the surgery. They anesthetized them. They put them to sleep and all the stuff. They created little incisions and made it look like the surgery had been conducted, but didn't actually do the surgery. And then when everybody woke up, the experimental group, which was the people that didn't receive the surgery, were recovered. Like to a, And I don't remember exactly what the percentage is. I don't think it was 100% of the people, but it was a really high number of the people, like 90% of the people that yeah, believed yeah, they had yeah. the, the knee surgery were healed. Yeah. It was high enough to have the effect of the surgery, you know, not surpass or be like significantly different than not having surgery, which is like astounding. And that, you know, just really is proof of the power of the mind, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is it cool? It's so cool. And it's, I really, um, I love the, the integration of these two things that you're bringing to the table in terms of the, you know, the way that you were raised and the stories that you're telling and also your, your current experience as a scientist and a PhD student. And I'm, I want to kind of think about how to shift gears a little bit and talk about, you know, I want to talk about your book. Yeah. And so, and I'll just say it for the listeners. I have it here in front of me. 31 Universal Spiritual Principles, a daily guide and tool for spiritual growth, joy, and empowerment. And it's from the teachings of Michael Bernard Beckwith. So perhaps before I talk to you about some of the content of the book, how did Michael Bernard Beckwith come to be your dude? <laughs> your guru, so to speak. That's, that's right. How did you come about to be my... That's, you know what? Okay. How do I make this concise? Because it's it it seems like looking back that it was really sort of a process of coming together, you know, as far as Michael Beck was. So I'm going to, here's the thing, lastly, that I didn't quite share here, but, you know, I remember when I was growing, you know, in, in Dory in Burkina Faso, at the age of six already, I do remember just, I will just have this really constant vivid dreams of being in the U.S. Yeah. 
And it was like this whole, like being in the U.S. and being part of the big celebration of life. There was just this like celebration of love and inclusivity and all that. And it really excited me. <laughs> and as a six-year-old, all I did with it is just play with it. You know, you make up games and you imagine that. And so I was always acting like that, you know, in my six-year-old games and <laughs> whatnot. And didn't think much of it. And then, you know, ultimately life had it that I actually did come to the U.S. And that was, you know, through how I was brought up here was um, the first time, at least, was I met an American couple that was in the Peace Corps and they sponsored my trip to, to the U.S., but fast forward, so that all happened and I was very young and, you know, like a teenager, but I, I was in my country and, and I studied there until through high school and I even did a year of college. So then I moved here for college, right? I moved to the U.S. and I was in San Diego. And shortly after, just about a few months after I moved to San Diego for college, I met a friend of mine and his name is Luciano. And Luciano, who is from Brazil... It was also studying sociology, but he was like really like into sociology. He was a very philosophical person, but he was really also into just like the spirituality. So we had a lot of great conversations. And then one day he hands me a book called The Secret. And, and at this point, there's just been a lot of great serendipity. What's the word in English? Serendipity. Serendipity. Yeah, yeah serendipities in my life. <laughs> and I, you know, just great fortune. There was just ways that my life has been unfolding up until now that if you really look, it's, wow, what a lucky and fortunate person. Like tremendously grateful yeah. For just like the seemingly being in the right place at the right time, you know, like in all that and just great fortunes unfolding in my life. So when he handed me the secret, the book, I start reading the secret. And right then I, you know, I was like, oh yeah, this is, I get that. Yeah, totally. That's how I feel. That's how I think. That's what my brain does. That's how, oh, maybe after all, it's not just by chance. Mm -hmm. that I tend to be in these places at the right time or meet the right people at the right time. There must be some kind of, you know, principle of nature that I'm not aware, you know, not fully masterful, but either consciously or unconsciously, I just tend to sort of be aligned with those, like, you know, laws of nature that yes. life work, right? Mm -hmm. But when I read The Secrets, because your question is, how did Michael Beckwith become my dude? <laughs> when I read The Secret, there were multiple teachers. Yeah. And every time there was something that really spoke to me, you know, I would highlight it or, you know, I would write it as a quote and a series and a series. And after I finished reading the book, and I didn't realize that, but it was after I finished reading the group book, I realized that, oh my gosh, like nearly 85% of all the things that spoke to me in the book that I have written down were actually from Michael Beckwith. But that was something I discovered in retrospect because then there was a movie and I didn't know a documentary. So then I watched a documentary about it. And then there was the dude, you know, and he was there with like his, and there was yeah. something about his voice and his being, right? Mm -hmm. It was incredibly masterful. And I felt like I really like this person and what they're saying. It's they're putting word into my life, like what I've been experiencing since six years old, but I still didn't know that Michael Beckwith was actually sort of like a spiritual teacher who was a funder of agape, who was in that life. So fast forward, I'm applying to grad school because I'm about to graduate. And there were 
you know, for those who believe or, you know, in signs, you may appreciate that. For those who don't, it may just be pure chance. But I really felt like I was being pulled to L.A. for whatever reason. I don't know. Yeah. But I felt like I was pulled to L.A. for grad school. I was pulled to choose L.A. for grad school for many reasons that I won't go into detail here. So then I did choose LA. I chose USC for grad school. So I come to USC. And then a week later, you know, when I moved to LA to start grad school, Luciano comes in town again. Mm-hmm. And it's like four circles. Circle. <laughs> and Luciano says, all right, well, now I want to introduce you. I want to take you to my spiritual center. And I thought, oh, Luciano is taking me to many spiritual centers because that's what we do. We go and explore spiritual places. He's from Brazil. He's taking me to so many Brazilian places, you know, in churches and whatnot. And okay, here I am. We're going to another Brazilian thing. And I, and I love learning from, you know, different cultures and whatnot. But when we went to Agape, when we parked in the parking lot, I looked around and something felt different. Yeah. And then we walked in, you know, we walked at Agape International Spiritual Center. And then the people I was greeting and I felt, wait a minute, they just, it's like the entire world was here. <laughs> and then I'm like, wait, this is, it was flashbacks of my dreams. That whole, you know, people, like the kind of people that were around, it was everybody, you know, you could see everyone literally like black and white and all that and young and old and I'm like, no, I've never seen thing, this thing anywhere else, but in my dream. When oh I was my God. Old. Yeah. And then we sit. And before Agape starts their service, there's a meditation. There's like a 20 minute, you know, 20 half an hour meditation. And it was during that meditation that I really got, oh my gosh. It's like my heart, my being, everything just started, ah, like a celebration. And then I opened my eyes right after the meditation ended. Before the service began, I looked at Luciano and I said, what do you mean your spiritual center? I feel like I just found my community. That's, yeah. that's it. That's what's been pulling me. And I did, still didn't know what it was. And then when the service began and then, you know, ultimately Michael Beckwith was speaking, there was just like this warmth and I just got so moved by like the speech, the clarity, the succinct, like, like the way he was speaking about just life and like spirituality finally someone was literally putting words in the way that even I could not to that thing that I've been pointing to my entire life that I felt, you know, every time I shared, often I was told that I live my life between passion and imagination and it's okay, but that's not real. Yeah. It's too ideal, you know, it's too idealistic. Yeah. To have Michael Beckwith on stage saying it literally as he was saying it, like speaking to my heart, but it's like putting words into that which I felt for my entire life and felt cold for. And to be around and look at this, like a, a probably 1,400 people that were responding to that. In that moment, Leslie, it was not personal anymore. It was not my dream. It was, I really got that, oh my gosh, this is not even a personal phenomenon of mine. This was a vision. Yeah. This is a vision. See, if I can hold it that way and see it that way, and you can, and he can, and a thousand other people can, but it turns out there's like at least, uh, you know, at least probably several hundreds of thousands who do see it that way. It's not even a personal phenomenon. It's literally just a vision that we're yeah. fooled by. And so that was my, you know, connection to him. And then I just felt like I needed to go and say hi after service. And then I walked towards him and, you know, to introduce myself. 
And, but I'll never forget because when, you know, when I shared who I was and like, you know, like he looked at me and he smiled and he said, I've been waiting for you. You're my spiritual daughter. <laughs> oh, man, I have chills. Yeah, it was just like an instinctual thing for him. Yeah. 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 But there was this like really soulful connection. And yeah, and that was it. And I really wanted to dive into the space and just explore and learn more from him. So, you know, I, they have a university. So I took several metaphysical classes in university there, you know, for people that go to actually get credited and be spiritual therapists and whatnot. So, but I was really interested in learning. And for a while, I would actually have really vivid dreams of just really clear interactions with Michael Beckwith where it it would feel like the entire night. And, you know, hopefully that doesn't sound too odd for, you know, people, but it it was the kind of dreams that I've just never had with anybody else in terms of a teacher, but he would just show up and just bring about like a topic, you know, like a spiritual topic. And he'll be like, all right, with that go. And so there will be this like constant interaction, like you sort of like understanding and going forth and, you know, back and forth. So the point that when I wake up, I'm like, oh my gosh, it just feels like this shift or integration for me spiritually. And and for in many dreams, I would sometimes go back at Agape and, you know, after service, I'll be like, so in this dream, there was that and that, and he said that, and you just always laugh. And yeah, that's just called initiation. And I'm really glad to be part of it. And, you know, like things like that. Amazing. He seemed like he knew, you know, like also what was going on, or at least there was just someone that held a space yeah. in terms of, I'll be, well, why am I having all these dreams or not? Because I was not dreaming about the past, but it was really specific spiritual concept that I would be like, you know, speaking. And every now and then it will be sort of like an audience. And then there was, you know, like him. And then <laughs> there were a few like teachers that I recognized, like master teachers, you know, like in the room and it would be like, all right, so now go. <laughs> and then it was just, but they were, and they're great. So anyways, this is my long answer to your short question. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it so much. And there's, so there are a couple of things that I want to say and um, zero in on in some ways to kind of decode things for the listener, because I think one of the things that's really interesting about this is that I really don't know what the ratio ultimately is for the people who are listening in terms of te- how much are we speaking to the choir, preaching to the choir yeah, versus yeah. how much are we speaking to skeptics? I really don't know. Yeah. But I have a um, separate interview in this series with somebody where one of the things that we talk about is what makes manifesting difficult for people. You know, what are the unconscious blocks that that can either keep a person from, I'll use the word manifesting, like either manifesting their experience or even believing that manifesting is real, right? Because going back to what we were talking about with the the placebo effect, it's interesting to think that so much yeah. of what we're talking about is like, do you believe it or can you even believe it, right? So, but the, what I'm hearing you say more than anything is kind of two things. One is that for whatever reason, we may not know what the reason is, but you have been doing this very naturally for pretty much your entire life. Like for whatever reason, it came and it continues to come naturally for you. And so for you, there wasn't, you didn't have to kind of battle with your beliefs around it. It just was happening organically, which I think is really powerful. And something that I would also wonder about, uh, and I would love to hear your thoughts about this, is that, so one of the things that we know from the world of theoretical physics is that time 
as we think of it as human beings in a linear fashion where there's past, present, and future, does not actually exist. You know, in it's interesting to think this appears to be a product of our consciousness. We don't time is not linear. At the level no. of sort of our physical reality, all time is occurring all the time. Totally. So one of the things that I would wonder about is, you know, to what extent are you kind of you know manifesting this quote unquote versus to what extent are you just were you just predicting the future somehow that there was like almost like a seepage where like the future was kind of seeping through for you? Have you what do you think about that? That's a really cool, that's a nice question. And yeah, and yes, about the concept of time, you know, as much as I'm not a, a quantum physicist or anything. I do remember that in the few physics classes I've taken in college, the time was never a vector. It was a scalar. And, you know, a vector is what has, you know, a direction. And time was not in physics. So, yeah, there is not the concept of time, like you said, Leslie, is only really a product of consciousness. So past, present, and future are all here. And it is quite possible um, that what we're doing is that sort of like tapping into, at least in the realm of awareness and consciousness into sort of, you know, that, you know, like the future. And and when it comes to future, all of the past is here, all of the present is here and all of the future is here that will happen, mm-hmm. happen you know, from that concept. And and future, I, I think I like to think of future as future as possibility. Mm-hmm. And, and when it comes to future as possibility, there's you know, like virtually it's, it's infinite, you know, what's possible is really what's infinite. It's really beyond what we would think is possible, right. For us human beings, I am constrained. Unfortunately, we all are by the capacity of my brain to, to think about a thing called even future or predict a thing called future, which is sort of why I have a brain to begin with is to really, you know, take all of that, which I have had from the past and try to predict the future. Why? So that I'm safe, so that I'm not eaten by a lion or I don't die or anything like that. Right. Predicting the brain tends to remember the future, but that's like sort of the brain. I think it's not most basic, but like the overall overarching function um, of, of the brain for us. In this Particularly time. of the conscious mind, right? Particularly, that totally. You know, something I just want to say really quickly, it's funny that there's this phrase that people hear a lot where, you know, that we only use, you know, 3% of our brain power or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and it's yeah. yeah, for consciousness, for conscious. because your brain yeah. is doing all sorts of things. It's making your heart beat without thinking about it. It's making your lungs respirate you. and, it's, you. and it's doing a lot of other things too. Yeah. 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 That's, that's exactly. Thanks, Leslie, because that's where I was going with this conversation. See, there is a whole like reflex and reptilian brain that doesn't need me, you know, to be there. And when I say, does it need me to be there <laughs> to be me as it does need that conscious awareness and conscious ability. And yeah, it's it, it cares nothing about your day planner. No, it doesn't. Yeah, you know? yeah. And and you know, it, it, and and if I'm not, if I don't bring about awareness and conscious awareness and the way that I'm present, I as myself, and you know, like really, then it it, it just it constantly hijacks my life. <laughs> you know, and I get the life it gives me. That reptilian brain, that subconscious, you know, even the, if you go beyond the reptilian brain that is maybe, you know, responsible for the reflex or beating of my heart and whatnot, Mm. even on the neocortex, you know, level of the brain or like the conscious level of the brain, you know, somewhere there lies the I am, like the I awareness and the I consciousness, yet not all of it. Mm. Right. So Mm -hmm. it really Mm -hmm. does require. So I, I think what happens is that part of the brain is so underutilized or that capacity of the brain from, you know, awareness and consciousness is underutilized, but 
perhaps, you know, as the consciousness is shifting and awareness is increasing and really just we're holding a higher frequency of being for us, you know, like human beings, like being aware and consciously creating our lives and our realities, we're able to tap into what what is futures and futures is possibility. And every now and then you sort of just get like a glimpse, you know, it's sort of if your brain tunes, it's some kind of, you know, if it's all like brain waves and it's all frequencies, if you can tune in some frequency, that's more of a frequency of the future, you can actually get some kind of like preview of what's mm-hmm. coming. Right. And if you get it and if you, and you have that ability where you have that heart brain coherence, that heart brain coherence and knowing, and you have the ability to discern, right? To discern from what the brain, the old brain is making up that just predicting the future or worrying about the future, but predicting from the past versus what your brain is actually catching. That's more of an insight, you know, that's more of a preview of the future. When you can discern the two and you have the capacity to lean more, lastly, to lean more towards that which you just got that is actually a pure insight uh, of what's ha- what's coming or what's possible for the future. Not just the only thing, because I do believe that even the future that hasn't happened lives in like just infinite potentiality. Yeah. But if you catch at least a glimpse of a future that's possible, that is not a future that, you know, like the brain tried to predict from your past. Yeah, and there's something new. And if you can behold that, right, this yes. is a spiritual principle, when you can behold that, when you can listen for that, when you can be from it, when you can act from it, then you're going to have a paradigm shift for your life and you can bring about that kind of future into being. Yeah, that's incredible. So there's there's something that I want to say kind of to make sure that you and I are totally on the same page and also to make sure that the listener hopefully is on our page as well. But there are two thoughts that I'm having kind of simultaneously hearing what you're saying. Yeah. One is the idea, yeah, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but it's kind of interesting to think that for a lot of people, when they dig into this conversation, we start to get into the idea that's sort of at the quantum level, that there are infinite possibilities that are playing themselves out simultaneously, you know, that we are potentially, we all are, we're living on a timeline, right? That is our experience of reality as human beings. But that theoretically, there are these choice points, right? Where you do, if a person chooses to believe it, get to make choices about what you want the future to contain. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. as trippy as this gets, we may or may not be sort of splitting off into infinite possibilities where, you know, (laughs) the Fatimata in this particular time-space continuum, the Leslie in this particular time-space continuum, I am experiencing time as sort of linear and going on a particular chain, but there, there may be like an infinite number even of me's or of you's. (laughs) You know, having all of these experiences simultaneously starts to get a little bit trippy. But to your point, it's interesting to think that it is also a function of the human brain that we tend to think that the future will be consistent with the past. Yeah. Yeah. That this is one of the downsides, actually, of having a fixed identity, you know, (laughs) that has both memories and also desires. Absolutely. That there's a temptation to think you know, that the the future will be like the past. And what if it isn't? What if we get to choose something better than that or more than that? You just hit the nail on the head. That's it. Yeah. And wherein really lies the the seed of creation and the seed of being a participant, right? Participating in your own unfolding, participating in your own 
life. You know, it, it takes conscious awareness. Otherwise, what we get is sort of like what the brain is giving us, which yeah. unfortunately the brain only has, right? Brain is, you know, like my experience is always, you know, correlated with, you know, like, you know, you know, just to keep it simple, like the uh, patterns of the ways that the, the brain and neurons fires in the brain, right? But what my brain knows comes from the past. Yeah, we could almost call them default settings, right? Default settings. I like that. Yeah, let's keep it. So I have default settings and my brain keeps score and records of every default setting, every experience I've ever had from the past, from the day I was born. Mm-hmm. And my brain cares for me and is interested in me being well and me being safe, especially in me being safe, okay? And not dying in in the silly manner, right? So my brain's always constantly using everything I give it from the past, every default pattern. And it's just trying to make the best possible scenarios and combinations to predict what will be the safest future for me to navigate into. So if I am living a life by default, it's predictable that's the kind of future I'll get. Yep. Where when I bring conscious awareness and I'm really participating in, you know, really intentionally creating my life and my future, then I, you know, I have a choice and I can author a future beyond what my brain thinks is possible for me. I love it. I love it. I have a huge juicy question I want to ask you, but first there's <laughs> yeah. just one one quick thing I want to add to what you just said, because I think it's so important, is that to your point in terms of it being your brain's job to keep you safe. It's interesting to think that part of what these default settings include is a natural temptation to make the future like the past because that is what feels safe. Like that is what's known. So like that gravitational pull of the familiar comes from at the level of our pure nervous systems. I know how to do this, right? This is what's familiar. Yeah. So big, juicy question, because I can only imagine there are some people that are listening to this that are like, but how? (laughs) So I have some things that I'll break down so that we can make this a little bit more simple. But first, I want to ask you a big question is, so for anyone who's listening to this, it's basically, but what do I do? What's your sort of big, what what do people do here? How do they start to change the way they think about their future? And what do they do differently in order to have more of what they want out of life? Yeah, that's, oh, wow. That is a huge question. I think the access to that ultimately is to you really have the first of all the, the desire, right? Like you have to have the desire or you have to be interested in actually breaking that cycle or disrupting this. If there isn't a genuine interest, you know, it won't work. And and inside of that, if I'm committed, Leslie, and if I really have a genuine interest and desire to actually like interrupt those default settings, then it will make it easier for me to cultivate space or, I mean, I'm sorry, cultivate time, Mm. right? To learn to know who I am, to learn to know who I am. There's a lot of things we dedicate time for throughout our day, responsibilities and obligations of life, all that, right? How much of it do we actually use to just go inward? And want to discover who we are, mm-hmm. like really who we are beyond just reactions. So, yeah. And who like, we are beyond our identities, beyond, beyond our, our point in the book, like beyond yeah. the trends, beyond the entertainment, like who That's are we it. at our core? Yeah. 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 So authentically digging into like really who we are, because, you know, we, we, we're self-identified with all kinds of things. We identify with our intellect. We identify with 
you know, like our, sometimes our strength, our skills, sometimes we identify with our body, you know, sometimes we, unfortunately, some people even identify with maybe, you know, like their, their weaknesses or whatnot. Yeah. All kind of our, like full our self-imposed limitations or belief. And that's not who we are. That's not who I am. That's not who you are. That's not who we are. So now I can say that in this podcast, lastly, right? Or you and I can say it over and over again. It won't necessarily make a difference for someone else, you know, it, the kind of difference that they want it to make in their life until they themselves wake up and have their own experience awareness of, oh my gosh, I'm not my body. I have a body. Oh my gosh, I'm not my intellect. I have mm, an intellect. Yeah. Because right now, it's either you're hearing me say I, you're not your body, you have a body, and you're saying, I don't know what you're talking about, you know, and you're on the defensive, which that's okay, or you you get it intellectually and you're t- you were telling me, oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah, of course I'm not my body. I'm bigger than my body. Well, but it could be an intellectual also just like game, but profoundly knowing that, and I think and I acknowledge you, Leslie, for having a podcast as such mm-hmm. that brings conversations that really matters, that plant about the seeds and give people access and direction in terms of, you know, like, well, how do I access that myself? Because once someone experiences it for themselves, then it's theirs forever. And I really think sitting still and going inward can give you like a huge, you know, just like access to having a direct encounter for yourself yeah. for what we're talking about here. Meditation so in, a nu- in a nutshell. Yeah. Just to yeah, say the word. Meditation yeah. in that, sh- you know, like, in fact, I just, I've just come back from, and I love doing those retreat, 10 day silent meditation retreats, Leslie. And, you know, the first three days of uh, that meditation retreat, all you're doing is pretty much just sitting and breathing and, you know, you know, in the con- comfortable position, but watching your breath. And when you're watching your breath and you're not talking, right? Because it's a silent meditation. You don't talk for 10 days, but if you don't talk for two, three days, all that you have is really your thoughts. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's such a great way to be like literally present to the, the, that your thoughts are constantly changing. It it is one thought here and then another, and they're not logical. They're not, you know, they don't even come in some kind of like sequence that sort of makes sense. (laughs) But like, you would laugh at it after three days, right? And you're like, okay, well, which one is it? This thought comes and goes, that one comes and goes. I'm none of that. None of this thought. It isn't one thought that's me, right? And then ultimately, you know, by the fourth day and the fifth day, your mind has become sit still enough and you have a certain level of mastery of the mind that you start to observe your physical body. And, and in, you know, in this retreat, I was literally present to literally a moment where I experienced my entire physical body just being this, like, literally just like constant flux of sensation. There was actually nothing solid about my body at some point. Now, I studied biochemistry, right? As a biochemist, I understand the whole like molecular level and, you know, like atomic, subatomic level and composition of the body. I knew that at the intellectual level, but experiencing my body at that level, literally just, it was something else because it was like, wait, the thought are constantly changing. The body's constantly changing. You and I don't even have the same body we had, Leslie, when we started this podcast. Right. That's right? how much things are constantly changing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. then where is I when both mind and body like are, are in this constant flux, right? So it allows, it's one way to really dissolve like that false identity that we put together, you know? 
that is just, you know, that we relate to so strongly as like I. <laughs> so incredible. Yep, yeah, I love it. Mm-hmm. So who is I? And this is, you know, my contribution to the world is 31 universal spiritual principles, which is really about the art of living, mm-hmm. right? And the art of living and, and what do I mean by that is uh, I've always been called like a fortunate and lucky human. And I always thought, yeah, my life is really good and I'm thankful for that. And, you know, I've had, I've been through challenges myself in life. I've been through challenges and hardship. There's a way that I navigated them that, you know, brought about tremendous growth yeah, and wisdom yeah. for me. And I think that we all have our own set of challenges sometimes in life, right? And it is possible to grow through them and to expand and become more of who we are, you know, on the other side of those if we are equipped and we have the kind of tools that support us or allows us to understand how to um, navigate those. And that I discovered is really just understanding, you know, like the laws of nature and learning how to live in harmony with the laws of nature, whether those laws are physical, you know, like gravity, we build our houses and everything in harmony with the gravity. Right, exactly. We build planes in, in, and we let in accordance and harmony with the law of, you know, aerodynamics, you know, Mm -hmm. that's why they fly. So those are physical laws. It's easier for us to understand, but there's non-physical laws as well that are at play here, you know, that we call spiritual and spiritual is not dogma. It's not religious. It just means eternal Mm -hmm. laws that when we are consciously aware of them, it gives us a lot of power. It gives us a lot of power in understanding who we are. It gives us a lot of power in taking that kind of responsibility or like self-responsibility for our life, for our transformation, for our growth, for our health, for, you know, like really having just a, a great life. But yeah, I would highly recommend just the willingness to, you know, just maybe go inward. And meditation is always a great place to start. Whatever that looks like, there's different types of meditation. You know, some people, it's just contemplative meditation that they start with. Some people don't want to close their eyes and watch their breath. It seems like a waste of time or whatnot. Some people- For some people, it triggers trauma. It does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, if anyone's listened to this and if it applies to you, I would just sort of say, it's okay if you need to leave your eyes open, if you need to sort of stare at a a flame of a candle or something, if that makes, you know, however you can do it is fine. Totally. Or if you like blocks and yoga, you know, (laughs) and yoga as a yoga instructor. Yes. I highly recommend yoga, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, or, or grab a, grab like a, you know, just turn on a podcast like Leslie's and listen to an episode or not even an episode, five minutes of an episode and then pause and reflect on that. What do you hear from that? What does that mean for you? Or maybe grab a book that you like, you know, and read like a paragraph or a page and sit with that or journal with that. Those are all some of the ways that you can train the mind to ease, you know, like ease the mind into, you know, habitual ways of meditating. Cause you know, that just contemplative meditation, but ultimately, you know, that may do just being still. Absolutely. I don't doubt that at all. I think if, if someone can listen to a conversation like this, let's say they've never thought about this kind of thing before, and it seems really revolutionary. If you even contemplate it and can begin to even almost intellectually understand it, that alone, I think, creates movement. Because we live in a world, and I think certainly particularly in the United States right now, where people are so so entrenched in what their reality feels like to them that what we're talking about right now is really far off their map mm-hmm. of how the world works, right? It's, you know, you think about like identity politics or how much people, people just really grip on 
you know, to their identity, to their beliefs about reality. And it kind of reminds me, so, you know, I could talk to you about this forever, but I want to kind of start to wrap us up in the interest of time. Yeah. And one of the things that I did, I know it's wild. I feel, I mean, we could be here, we could be here for days and we wouldn't even notice it, but obviously we can't go through all 31 principles, but I went through and I pulled out a couple of quotes that I want to run by you. And the one that is sticking out to me right now with what we're talking about is most people do not experience reality, but rather their thoughts about reality. And do you want to sort of speak to that just a little further, given that we're already in that territory? <laughs> like, tell us a little bit about what that means to you. Yeah, I can. So, um, you know, it's when it comes to our experience, lastly, if you and I, you know, we're sitting right now, I don't know, like in, in you know, let's say a movie theater or something, and then there's a hundred other people and then, you know, we, we watch a movie or whatnot. It's it's likely that we were going to have a hundred different interpretations, yeah, in our experiences of that movie. If we went to a wedding, you know, and there are 170 people at the wedding, you will have 170 versions of that wedding. Absolutely, yep. Yep. Which one is the real? You know, like (laughs) yep, yep. uh, What was the real wedding? So, and that's the point. As in, there is what's so in life out there in reality. And there is a way, going back to the conversation that we talked about the brain, your eyes do not even see reality. Their eyes, your eyes, my eyes don't see reality as it is. Yep. Right? We don't see. What happens is if I'm looking at reality or life out there, then my brain is because of what my brain knows so far in all my default settings, my brain is picking up and just some part of some version or distort that reality and then thinks that that's what I'm seeing, but it's so much affected by all my default patterns. And then my brain gives it back to my, you know, my heart or my mind, my consciousness. And it says, well, this is what you're seeing. And I think, oh, this is what I'm seeing. Right. So it's never free. My experience is never free from all of my conditionings of the past. Now, what you're saying, I just want to say, is unbelievably true. We could have a whole separate conversation totally. about this alone in terms of how just even the evidence that the, the way our eyes perceive reality is not, totally. strictly speaking, accurate. It's an accurate depiction of physical reality. Yeah. It is not an accurate depiction. And that's why sometimes we say it's fair to say that you see you see with your brain, not with your eyes. <laughs> you know, so and, and that's like purely from a scientific perspective. And parallel to that, the spiritual principle that comes with that is paradigm blindness. Say and that parad- one more time. What? Paradigm blindness. Paradigm blindness. Got it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's the principle that your eyes cannot see what your mind doesn't know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, so far, science and spirituality are pretty much, you know, like saying the same thing. And so what we're left with is really our thought about reality and and that that can be the source of, you know, know, a lot of maybe sometimes upset at times or confusions or limitations uh, for what's possible. But and what we spoke to so far when it comes to the willingness to go inward and sit still or like meditate or, you know, like really distinguish who we are beyond the set of identity that we put together is to start to, you know, like really, what's the word I'm looking for? It's to start to dissolve that, dissolve those illusions so that there's an opportunity, at least a possibility that we can be with life and actually experience reality as it is. Yeah. And it really comes from, you know, like 
when we dissolve that, when we dissolve all of the our personality traits, all of our default state, all of the ways that we've learned to cope with things and adapt with things and react to things, when you dissolve all of that, then you start to show up in the life in life from a way that's totally authentic, like who you are. And when authenticity itself like speaks through our mouth, right, sees through our eyes, just when that's the place where we come from. Now our life has become real. The who we show up and who we say we are and how we actually take on also life out there. Now it has become real. And that requires discipline, right? And that's like the spiritual principle number one is discipline, which really is a bliss, right? There's bliss discipline, we say in discipline. (laughs) (laughs) Because Wow, what would it be like if I can just show up and be myself, Leslie, like authentically who I am, like I can share myself and there's no in order to, there's nothing that I need to protect or there's nothing that I need to defend or there's nothing that I need to force to yeah, yeah. be myself and I can just grant others being and that I can accept life in its own terms right now, exactly the way it is and the way it isn't. There's no need to push against anything. So gorgeous. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and yeah, and that's what it means to be, you know, it's, I think it's Osho who said that to be a disciple is to learn the discipline of being yourself. Ooh, that's, that's a good one. It's yourself. Oh, that's a really good one. <laughs> God, I love that so much. Okay. Let's just do two more of these because I can't okay. help myself. It's just so juicy. Okay. <laughs> so this is one of my favorite quotes from your book and it gets into gratitude. So I want to talk to you about this. Here's the quote. Yes. There is a clear distinction between happiness and joy. Happiness is an emotion that's connected to circumstances and is extrinsic in nature, while joy is a spiritual way of engaging with the world that's connected to practicing gratitude. It is intrinsic in nature. Happiness comes and goes given our external circumstances, while joy can be known and felt even in our toughest moments. Mm. Will you say just a little bit more for the listeners about <laughs> what, uh, what meaning they can make of that or what they could take away? Ah, oh, this is so good. This is one of my favorite quotes. And I'm glad that you brought it up, right? Because, and really, I've had moments um, in my life, and some will say, where it wasn't all great, you know? There was maybe a pain, there was a heartache, you know? that I was navigating or whatever it was on the circumstantial level of life and happening out there. Yet in the midst of it, there was this palpable like joy and they were there together in the same space. And, 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 and that was not given by the circumstances. It was not given. So where did that come from? That is intrinsic. And that is, always available for us. So yes, we, you know, a lot of us, most human beings have a motivation to do what we do in order to, because we want to be happy. We want to have the relationship we, we want to have, we want to have the career, we want to have the money, the why, because in the having of it, we really truly believe that we will be happy. Now, here's the thing. Happiness is will come and go in life because circumstances we don't have control over 
most circumstances in life we don't have control over. So if happiness, if the kind of happiness that we're searching for is the one that is attached to circumstances, mm-hmm. it, will be a, it, it will be a come and go phenomenon. Yeah, And you can't hold on to it. If it was the car that made you happy, if it was the partner that made you happy, if it was the weather that made you happy, things will change. Yeah. And it's happiness is extrinsic because it is given by circumstances. If circumstances are going your way, you're happy. If they're not going your way, you're not happy. But see, happiness will come and go. And what you would want and what's available for you that you can tap into that can be sustainable, right, is really, truly, profoundly joy. Mm-hmm. Joy is not connected to circumstances at all. It is really not. Joy is an intrinsic, right? It's just, it's intrinsic and it's a spiritual way of being in life that's given by practicing gratitude. So you can have joy regardless of the circumstances are good and you like them exactly how they are, or you can have joy when the circumstances aren't. And I, you know, like I really wanted to share that for the audience in, you know, like in the book and here that. How do I get joy? Okay, well, here's the good news. It's not attached to any circumstance. How you get joy is by practicing gratitude. Yeah. It really is by practicing gratitude. Now, there's three levels of gratitude. There's three levels of practicing gratitude, which I don't explicitly say in the book. But you see, we learn to be just grateful for all of our blessings. Mm-hmm. You know, like I have a five minute journal that I've been using for a while now, you know, and you wake up and you write three things that you're grateful for. I'm so yeah. grateful for the weather. I'm just so grateful for an incredibly just soul, you know, like filled conversation with Wesley today. Like really mm-hmm. I'm grateful for this podcast, right? I'm grateful that all my needs are met and I'm healthy. You can be grateful for all the blessings in your life, but that's like the first level of gratitude. Ultimately, we move into a space where we learn to actually be grateful for our challenges. Yeah. I am grateful for all of my challenges. Yeah. And for the growth that they contain. And Leslie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, like uh, my challenges were all like, you know, potentials in seed. See, there's some gift and talent and skills that we all have in us Mm -hmm. that unless there's a challenge in our lives, those gift, talent, and skills will stay in seed because there will never be a need for us to just really embrace or allow those gifts to, you know, just come forth and blossom. So gratitude for our challenges will begin when we really start to get present that life does not happen to us. Life happens for us. Well, exactly. It happens for (laughs) us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So that this gratitude for my challenges, my challenges bring about the kind of, you know, question that I'm always asking, what gift within me is seeking to emerge? What is the gift here? What is the gift here, right? It's not what's wrong. Why is this happening to me? Wrong question. Mm -hmm. You know, as like, we're always in the state of inquiry and it matters what question we're asking. The questions are more important. Not only is what you're saying, I think, spot on, I'm wondering how many people have really learned this lesson in a more full and complete way during COVID. Mm. You know, that I think, you know, some people have had, you know, we all have been challenged. We all have been challenged each in our own way. Some people have been met with, you know, really severe challenges. 
And also, I think a lot of people have found grace in it. Like when life gets sort of stripped down to its essence, you know, you start to become grateful for the most simple things or even, you know, just the growth that comes from it. Absolutely. It was very funny, but I think it was Michael Beckwith that I heard say that the corona, you know, the coronavirus pandemic has somewhat been of, you know, also a corona bonus. <laughs> mm, and then like great spiritual yeah, teacher. You know, yeah, it's brought about the kind of conditions that really had us pause. Yeah. We were just talking about and reflect or move through some really un unpredicted. The brain did not predict the kind of challenges, but who we are now on the other side of it, or still maybe in the midst of it, but who we know ourselves to be now compared that who to who we were two years ago is, you know, is different. So gratitude for our blessings. And gratitude for also our challenges. And I love it's Alan Cohen who says that every minus in your life is only half of a plus. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> I wish the listeners could see your hands. Yeah, it's um, a really good one. Yeah, it's just great. And then ultimately, you know, we become grateful for nothing at all. I'm just grateful. Why? Because I am. I'm grateful because I am. That's appreciation. And that's the highest level of gratitude that really bring about joy. That's incredible. Yeah. All right. One last one, and then we'll wrap up here. But this is actually probably my single favorite quote in the whole book. (laughs) Laughter takes us out of time. By the way, I don't know that I even need you to respond to this. I think I just need to read it. But if you want to respond to it, that's great. It's just such a great quote. (laughs) Laughter takes us out of time. For a microsecond, we become extemporal, transported into the gap a timeless dimension of the real where we aren't caught, snagged, or snared by our narrow little perceptions, points of view, or cherished beliefs. Such a good quote. <laughs> would you like to, would you like to c- comment on that? I've got no comment up? on okay. that. Yeah. I, you, you don't even I'll need to comment. Listen again. <laughs> exactly. I'm tempted to read it again. It's such a good quote, but no, I think it's, I don't think you even need to comment on it. I think it's beautiful, but I think one of the things that I'm hoping that people are taking away from this, I think, especially from what we were talking about before is that it's not a matter of trying to achieve some state of perfection, mm. right? Like mm. one, of, one of your lines that I, I also won't ask you to speak to, but I think it's a good one, is even enlightened beings burn their bagels every once in a while. And, <laughs> and I think it's important for people to keep that in mind, that it's not, a, it's not a, a matter of reaching some ecstatic state. I think that we can reach an mm. ecstatic state, you know, mm. we're meditating and practicing gratitude and finding joy even in difficulties, but the difficulties mm. are still there. Like, life is, you know, it's the essential Buddhist maxim, you know, that life is suffering. And I don't think we're here necessarily to escape that entirely. We're here to work with it. Don't you think? Leslie, thank you for saying that because this is such a, it's so great to end on that note. Yes. Yes. And yes. And yes. Hmm. This is not about seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. Yeah. This is about being, and this is about being with all of our humanity. Yeah. Really real power real freedom and real self-expression, real peace of mind for us human beings is how much of all of life can I be with? Life with its joys, its, you know, its, you know, its pains, its sadness, the laughters and the, and, and the, how much of all of life can I be with without losing, you know, my peace of mind, my balance, my joy, which is intrinsic, my enthusiasm, which is intrinsic. 
Yeah, without needing to numb yourself or sort of deny some piece of what you're experiencing. Absolutely. How do you engage Absolutely. with the reality how, of it? How yeah. To be with it all. And so, yeah, this is not in how to fix. This is where context is really important, you know, in the spiritual principle. And I'll be very short in that. But, you know, we don't come from what's wrong with me that I need to change. Yeah. What's wrong with me that I need to fix? No. What's right with you? Mm-hmm. What's right with you? Because yeah. you really are whole, perfect, and complete. And the principle is involution and evolution. Think of yourself as, a, you know, like really in a seed. You know, when you think about the an apple tree seed, you never think about what's wrong or what needs to be added or subtracted within the seed itself so that you're going to get an apple tree that's going to give you fruit. No, everything is already com- complete and contained in the seed itself. It's involute. You have everything that you need within yourself that's involute. Mm-hmm. And then there's a principle of evolution. And that's just the seed becoming more of itself over time. You plant the apple seed in the fertile soil with oil and I mean with oil, with soil, <laughs> the sun and, and water, you know, the appropriate uh, environment, that seed will sprout or become an apple tree and it will give you. And so for us human beings, all that we talked about is the kind of environment. It's like the analogy of the water and the fertile soil and the sun for us. So that all of our gifts and talent and skills that are involved, that are already within us, get to really evolve and unfold during our lifetime. And that we perfect our lovings, our loving, and we become more mature lovers. You know, people who really love for the sake of loving, like a genderless loving. Mm, so beautiful. So I will just ask you one last question here, which is about your your work with Sahal Sage, which you created, yeah. the nonprofit you created. And I just want to I want to let people know about this because I think it's really important work that you're doing. So will you tell people just a little bit about what that program does and how they maybe can support it? Absolutely. Sahel Sage, what we do is we, we're a nonprofit organization and we're also a Bible 13C. Um, so all donations to Sahel Sage are actually, are actually tax deductible for our sponsors. And what we do is we provide menstrual hygiene products as well as scholarships, tuition, school supplies, and just really mentorship also to adolescent girls in the Sahel region of Burkina Faso, which is where I grew up in Dori, to support them through a middle school and, you know, really support them in completing school and, and, and increasing the retention of girls in school. And so that's what we do. And it really matters because what we found out, Leslie, and it's a phenomenon that happens a lot throughout the world is you get, you know, like boys and girls start school, elementary school. It's already like a huge victory for girls to start school in the Sahel in Burkina Faso because not all girls get to go to school. And of the very few who start, you know, when they are in middle school, when puberty happens for girls, they start getting their period. And sometimes they lack the basic needs like pads, right? And what ends up happening is you get this extra much, really motivated, smart girl who unfortunately needs to miss school five to seven days every month, Yeah, five to seven days every month. And so your her motivation and her intellect, you know, it just doesn't, you know, like it's not enough as in like she falls behind ultimately in terms of grades and whatnot and drops out. And so we are providing pads, menstrual hygiene product, menstrual hygiene product, such that they don't need to not go to school. Right. Their period. And we provide also education so that they understand what's going on. And, you know, that this is really, or it's, it's natural and it's, it's normal for a girl to get like her period and totally 
nothing wrong with them and, and whatnot. And then we provide the financial support that's needed also. And, and we create partnership with people in the community and also their parents, especially the fathers, so that we really have real partnership and, you know, an environment that will support those girls in, in winning. Yeah. That is so incredible. Thank you so much. <laughs> and we can, you know, we can wrap it up there, but I will make sure that the link to that is in the show notes Absolutely. and all of the places where yeah. people can find the podcast. But I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me today. It's been amazing. <laughs> You're so welcome, Leslie. You've been listening to episode five of The Nature of Nurture, and I want to thank you for joining us. If you would like to connect with Fatimata, you can find her on Instagram at Fatimata Yoga, and you can learn more about the Sahel Sage program and make a donation if you'd like at sahelsage.org. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me as always at Dr. Leslie Carr on Instagram and Twitter. If you found this conversation valuable, please let me know by leaving a review or rating. It helps immensely to get the word out about the podcast and into the ears of those who may need it most. It'll also help me to understand what you're getting out of our conversations. You can also subscribe, if you haven't already, in any podcast app that you can get your hands on. Next up is the final episode of the season. I can't believe it, ending with a bang here. The final conversation is with my friend, physicist Radhika Dirks. So if any part of you thinks that I've lost my mind with this metaphysical stuff, you should stay tuned for that. Many, many thanks to my producer and sound editor, Amanda Roscoe Mayo, and to Fatimata for having this conversation with me. Thank you as well to Donio Dulio for the artwork, and thank you to Steve Van Dyke, Lee and Tyler Sargent, and Joe Potts for their permission to use their music. The band was called Clown Down. <laughs>